Hey everyone and welcome to the 46th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. This podcast is with my friend Ethan Holmes, who I actually met here at the University of Montana. We're talking about a bunch of stuff ranging from Russia, Ayn Rand, Dostoevsky, Russian culture and literature, American culture and pop culture, to libertarianism and the importance of love. So definitely stick around. Remember to subscribe to me on YouTube. Most of my interviews are now uploaded as videos, but I'm also on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. So subscribe to me there, give me a five-star rating, like, share, and then hope you enjoy the interview. Here's Ethan. Ethan, it's good to have you on. Thank you for having me, Liam. It's a pleasure. Yeah, of course. Do you want to just introduce yourself, maybe give a little background about your academic career? Well, absolutely. Um, As you said, uh, my name is Ethan Charles Holmes. Um, I graduated from the University of Montana not too long ago with degrees in political science and Russian. Um, And I recently started attending a master's program in politics, economics, and philosophy. So an interdisciplinary program at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, Russia. However, I haven't been studying in Moscow, Russia due to a pandemic border situations. So all remote, but nonetheless, great program at a great university. And you were actually working in Russia last year, right? Yes. So um, after I graduated from the University of Montana and before the coronavirus pandemic hit, I was working in the Siberian city of Novosibirsk um, as an English language teacher for a variety of age groups and experience levels. You know, seven-year-olds who don't know any English all the way up to 40-year-old fluent speakers. Uh, It was a great time. I loved exploring Siberian culture because all the Americans who go there to Russia tend to go to Moscow or St. Petersburg or some of these other bigger Western, like European Russia cities. Mm -hmm. And uh, being from Montana, I was a little bit uh, overconfident in my ability to handle the cold and thought, I'll have a unique experience and go to Siberia in the middle of winter. And uh, Montana winters are not actually akin to Siberia winters, surprisingly enough. Yeah, so you had to come back because of the pandemic then. Yes. So, um, you know, there are lots of warnings that perhaps flights would be canceled, that American citizens may have difficulties getting in and out. Um, So once things kind of started ramping up there in the mid late spring, um, I came back to the United States. I'd hate to get stuck in a, you know, 14 hours away in the middle of Siberia. Right. Do you know, is it pretty bad there? Was COVID bad at all? When I was there? No. Um, I know Russia did have a pretty bad run there with COVID in the first couple of months. Um, But once they got their Sputnik V vaccine working and uh, started implementing the public health measures that a lot of other countries did, um, I think that they had pretty comparable rates to places like the United States and other European countries. But I'm not a a data expert, so don't quote me on that. But I just know they didn't get hit lightly and they didn't get hit super hard. Yeah, one of the most interesting things, I think, about you studying over there is just Um, You know, a lot of people think of Russia and they think of U.S.-Russian relations. Um, How, and you know, a lot of people focusing on the Russia investigation and everything like that. Do Are the people in Russia as like opposed to the United States as some of the people here are opposed to Russia? Not really in my experience. Now, granted, once again, I was in Siberia, which just has a different cultural and political attitude overall, it seemed to me. Uh, a lot of people just didn't care about politics whatsoever. And I guess the same is kind of true in the United States as well. But when you realize, you know, a lot of people who are there, their families may have come 
by means of deportation to Siberia, some gulag or, or labor camp, or perhaps they were just um, forcibly assigned to work there in whatever field and occupation they, they had. And so on one hand, there's a fair bit of resentment towards the communist and Soviet system. On the other hand, I definitely talked to a fair number of people who had um, sympathy and nostalgia for the Soviet era. And when it comes to US-Russia relations, Everyone was thrilled to talk to me as an American. No one felt ill will because of my nationality, my citizenship. And it seemed as though they don't view the American and the Russian people as enemies, as much as the American and Russian government as just geopolitical global rivals, right? Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, it's at least the last couple of weeks have kind of got pretty heated. Do you know anything about what's going on? Um, yes, yeah, so there's a couple different um, things going on right now in the U.S.-Russia relationship that have been causing some tension. Uh, one of them was a large buildup of Russian forces in and around the Ukrainian border. And so we got in, to, uh, in with it, uh, in, in, I don't know what I'm saying, we got into it with Russia. And they recently announced they were going to be moving those troops away from the Ukrainian border, that it was just military drilling and troop maneuvers. Um, very likely, it was just kind of testing U.S. reaction and response. Uh, we were going to send U.S. warships into the Black Sea to uh, kind of sh- show our own force and our willingness to stand behind Ukrainian sovereignty. Then we pulled back on that, and we didn't end up sending warships into the Black Sea. So it seems like things have de-escalated on that front. But we, you also had the Navalny situation recently, which, for those who are unaware, um, Navalny is a Russian political opposition leader, um, kind of Putin's main political rival in the country, has run for office several times, been arrested several times for various things. And several months ago, he was poisoned, sent to a German hospital to recover. But then when he came back, he came back a little late and he missed a probation meeting, like a probation check-in. So then he got arrested for a probation violation, sent to prison, uh, and what many believe is unjust imprisonment. Uh, He went on a hunger strike recently because they weren't treating some of his medical issues, some back pain he was having. And the last word I heard was that the hunger strike is is getting to kind of critical levels that he's really starting to deteriorate health-wise. And of course, the U.S. doesn't like to see that. Uh, They don't like to see a a political rival imprisoned go on a hunger strike and then, um, you know, hopefully not die, but uh, that certainly hasn't helped the situation between the U.S. and Russia. So there's been sanctions going back and forth, expelling of diplomats, and uh, just general communication uh, sparring. Yeah, well, I mean, if you ever plan on going back, it'll be interesting to see after COVID is over how difficult that becomes with relations. Do Do you think it could get worse and like you might have difficulties going there, or has it been pretty open? pre-COVID. Yes, so it all it all depends. You know, on one hand, Russia's not, you know, they're not going to rush to get the borders back open to Americans, right? There's almost a political advantage messaging-wise to keeping Americans from coming in because the justification is the coronavirus situation in America isn't stable enough to justify letting American citizens in. Uh, you know, the health situation is still very concerning. And so I don't see the Russian government going out of their way to open up the borders to Americans and to start granting them visas again. Um, But you never know, right? You know, there could be an angle where they want Americans coming in, whether that be, um, you know, for economic 
reasons, for tourism reasons, uh, whatever it may be. But I don't see them doing it anytime soon, especially if relationships, our relationship continues to deteriorate. Um, it's just tough to say, you know, it's hard to get in the mind of someone like Putin. Um, he's incredibly smart, incredibly clever, um, for better or for worse. And so to try and put myself in his shoes is, is pretty difficult. But one thing to remember about Putin is that he is not only an avid practitioner of the sport of judo, but a very, very, um, a very, very knowledgeable man when it comes to the philosophy of judo as well. And one of the tenets of the philosophy of judo is that a smaller opponent can beat a bigger, stronger, faster opponent by using their own momentum, uh, weight, leverage against them. And so you see Putin doing that on the world stage and in domestic politics as well. So if the US did have a uh, more serious response to the buildup of Russian forces, for example, right? Well, then they're the ones making a big movement as the bigger power. And the philosophy of judo would say that Russia is then in a prime place to, to respond and use our momentum against us. And they do this not just militarily, but with intelligence and um, subversive operations as well. They take natural political social movements in the United States, you know, things like Black Lives Matter and Antifa, uh, groups on the radical right, you know, Proud Boys or whatever else, and they they harness that natural energy, but then accelerate it and, and put more force, resources, weight behind it in an attempt to destabilize the United States and its social fabric using its own natural ebbs and flows and motions. Uh, so uh, it's just very interesting if you're ever analyzing Russian political moves, uh, try and analyze it through the, the lens of the philosophy of judo, because very often you can see its influence on Putin, as he's openly admitted several times, um, that judo very much informs his domestic and international uh, political actions. Yeah, I was just going to ask if he's openly said that. That's that's very intriguing. I So one of the things that you and I have talked about frequently, though, is uh, Russian literature and Russian culture. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And I'm curious about how people like Dostoevsky are received culturally. Like, is that, are they a part of Russian culture in a way that they aren't in the United States, or are they just like another literary figure? You know, from the Russians that I've talked to, you know, Dostoevsky is considered one of the main, most famous Russian authors of all time, of any era. But much like if we, as Americans, talk about, you know, Hemingway um, or Steinbeck, right? You know, any of these other classic American authors, we're all familiar with the name. Um, a majority of us may have read one or two of their books in school at some point. Um, but outside of people who are already active readers, very into literature, um, he's not like a superstar by any means. I know a lot of Russians who actually find him incredibly boring. Um, the Russian is pretty hard to read in the native Russian. Um, once again, from what I've heard, I think it's difficult regardless. Um, but he's he's definitely highly regarded. And everyone, every Russian would know Dostoevsky, certainly. Uh, whether every Russian has read him and every Russian likes him uh, is a different question. So have you read the actual Russian then, the Russian text? I've read some passages um, of the books that I like in Russian. I'll find an English passage that I really enjoy or that has words that I'm not sure which uh, Russian words they were translated from. And so I'll go back and look. Um, but uh, I don't hate myself enough to read Dostoevsky in the original Russian, like a full book. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to dive into that because Dostoevsky is a very intriguing person. And I guess, where do you think is the best way to place to start? Do you think it's 
best to start with his life and how that influenced his works or with Notes from the Underground? Yeah, well, I, I think I'd start with Notes from Underground because that's where I personally started my journey with Dostoevsky. Um, so there at the University of Montana, there is a absolutely wonderful professor by the name of Clint Walker. And Clint Walker put on a Dostoevsky seminar my freshman year of college. And we were assigning readings of people to present on different chapters for the entire semester. And he mentioned there for the first week, you know, Notes from Underground, part one. And he said, it's very philosophical. It's considered one of the first existentialist texts. And so my hand shot up and I just knew I had to be the one to, to deeply analyze mm -hmm. it. And, you know, thank, thank God I did because it absolutely changed everything about my worldview, my perspectives, not just on philosophy and human nature and, and the, the ways of the universe, but about politics, economics, and, and all these other areas that I was already interested in. And so the reason why it's most important to start with Notes from Underground, for those who haven't read it, is because it's, it's relatively short, and it's one of Dostoevsky's earliest works that lays the groundwork for the rest of his great novels to come. And it centers around a figure uh, that's formally unnamed, but is often referred to as the underground man. Now, an interesting note is that the original Russian, uh, the title is uh, Zapisky iz Podpolya. And Podpolya kind of means like under the ground. And so that's how it was translated in English. But a better translation really would have been, uh, you know, crawl space or even mouse hole. You know, it, it would be more likely to refer to the small space under a house where rats and insects um, lived. And so in that way, the the, the character, the underground man, even refers to himself kind of as a bug or an insect sometimes. Uh, so it's an interesting tidbit there. But you've read Notes from Underground, correct, Liam? Yeah, and that definitely helps with the imagery. Like, it, it makes yeah. so much more sense. And so, so I love asking this question. Did you like the underground man when you read his giant monologue, or did you find yourself kind of repulsed by him? That's, that's very interesting because... I, I really didn't know what to think of him. There were, it, it felt very contradictory, I guess. And I think uh, you're spot on with that, with that point. It's intentionally contradictory. The, the narrator of the underground man is so unreliable, but intentionally so. He'll, he'll tell a lie and then he'll tell the reader, oh, I was lying just now. And he constantly insults himself, um, puts himself down, but then also blows up his own ego sometimes as though he's the best person in the world. He's kind of the embodiment of like teenage angst ramped up to a thousand. And so in a way, we're all put off by it. We don't like people like that, but we also see a tiny bit of ourselves in the underground man in a lot of the things he says. Um, and especially nowadays, I've made the observation that the doomer culture, this doomer meme in the recent years is a modern embodiment of the underground man's spirit, this... Um, fight against nihilism, this reconciliation of where one would like to be versus where they are, how they'd like the world to be versus how it actually is in their experience. And I guess I'll, I'll transition from Notes from Underground to politics by uh, talking about the implication of what Notes from Underground was talking about. So Notes from Underground was a response mainly to a work called What is to be Done? by a man named uh, Chernyshevsky. And this novel, What is to be Done, came out as a sort of utopian revolutionary piece of literature 
that a lot of people say influenced the Bolsheviks far more than any of Marx's writings, far more than the Communist Manifesto, Communist Manifesto or Das Kapital, this book, What is to be Done, was, was really influential in the Russian revolutionary movement. And Dostoevsky absolutely hated pretty much every idea espoused by the book. He was against, for one, rational egoism, this belief that self-interest is first and foremost, that you have to be um, acting in, in your best interest to be rational and to be moral, and that humans are capable of being these perfectly rational entities um, who can, with their enlightened view of the world, solve all of its ails and its problems and suffering. But the underground man goes, God damn it, I like to suffer. I have to suffer. And a life without suffering isn't one that I want to have. It isn't one that I can have. In Dostoevsky's view, people are anti-fragile. Uh, he's kind of a, an early advocate of anti-fragility insofar as he recognizes that suffering and chaos and instability are necessary features and positive ones at that. Um, and so, and also irrationality. Irrationality in his view wasn't a negative thing. It was an uh, important part of human nature. If we don't have the right to reject rationality and to be intentionally irrational and kind of crazy, you know, what's the point? You know, uh, I may as well be a piano key that you can just touch and get the same note over time um, if everything is determined. So he's anti-determinist, anti-rational egoism, anti-utopianism, and the way he laid out his case convinced me of those three things as well. And some of those come into conflict with my original libertarian leanings. For one, a lot of libertarians were influenced by Ayn Rand, and Ayn Rand is kind of the queen of rational egoism. And so there's a lot of conflicts in some of the core assumptions of libertarians make and a lot of their view of human nature that seems totally off to me because I'm in this anti-rational egoism uh, strand of thought versus this traditional Randian rational egoist objectivist uh, view of thought. And likewise, I find a lot of libertarians to be utopian in their thinking. I mean, they truly believe they can get utopia on earth by means of libertarian policy positions. And I'm also just not convinced of that. I think it's uh, foolish to, to frame the system as, as utopian and to believe that we're going to be that much better off under libertarianism. I think it's uh, marginal gains, important gains. I'm not anti-liberty, but to pretend as though it's a, the end-all be-all and the king's solution is absolutely ludicrous. And I think we do more harm, by more harm than good by looking at libertarianism as a utopian ideology. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was just going to bring up Ayn Rand, actually, as as you brought that up. But um, before we go deeper into that, uh, Dostoevsky and the Underground Man have found themselves in popular culture today. We've talked about that. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So kind of like I mentioned uh, about the Underground Man being this modern embody, or the, the, the Doomer being the modern embodiment of the Underground Man. We see it in some of our recent film as well. Um, the, uh, the film Joker, which came out to critical acclaim and critical criticism, uh, was largely influenced by Dostoevsky insofar as Joker was very much influenced by Taxi Driver. And Taxi Driver was influenced by Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, You know, the protagonist of Taxi Driver's Underground Man. The Joker, in many ways, is an underground man. And 
it's not surprising that we see these connections because Dostoevsky in many ways was the world's first psychologist. You know, crime and punishment, even notes from underground were groundbreaking insights into human psychology, into the feelings of guilt, of low self-esteem, of confusion with the world, of angst in general. So uh, we see this influence of Dostoevsky all the way up into modern culture. So I recommend that everyone at the very least take an hour of their life to read Notes from Underground Part One, uh, because if it has a fraction of the influence on your life that it had on mine and my thought, uh, you'll be better off. Yeah, and then what does Crime and Punishment add then to the Underground Man? What is what does Dostoevsky add to his story there? Yes, yeah, so in many ways the protagonist or rather antihero of Crime and Punishment, uh, Raskolnikov is an underground man as well. You see a lot of parallels between his thinking and that of the underground man from Notes from Underground. And he eventually comes to the conclusion that it's the rational thing to do in his self-interest to go and commit this, this murder um, for his material gain because he deserves it more. And then he has to deal with the fact that his this sort of philosophy that led him to this murder, this rational egoist philosophy, um, once it was put into action, once uh, it was this theory became praxis, he can't deal with the consequences. You know, there's there's guilt. There's a a part of human nature that rebels as soon as you put these ideas into action. And so, crime and punishment took the underground man and his ideas, showed what the inevitable consequences would be, what sort of actions would take place by people who adopt these sort of uh, thoughts and then how it would essentially destroy them from within unless they can essentially come to see that they were wrong in this way of thinking. But um, yeah, so in, in many ways, crime and punishment is just uh, part three of Notes from Underground because Notes from Underground is actually two parts. The first part being really the most important um, and then crime and punishment and subsequent novels, um, even demons, you know, some of the characters in demons um, can be classified as underground men in uh, Brothers Karamazov. Uh, you know, Aya Ivan could arguably be an underground man in many ways um, with his nihilist sentiments. So, yes, if you want to understand any of Dostoevsky's other works, once again, I, I'd really have to recommend that you read Notes from Underground to, to truly appreciate what's going into those characters and their thinking and what sort of ideas Dostoevsky was reacting to. And in many ways, you and me and, and a lot of other people are reacting to the very same ideas that Dostoevsky was back in the mid to late 1800s. Uh, nihilism, rational egoism, utopianism, they're problems of modernity, they're problems that naturally and logically flow from enlightenment thinking, um, from the consequences of the industrial revolution. And so it's, it's no surprise that Dostoevsky was dealing with the early forms of these ideas as they were kind of in their genesis and we still haven't figured it out to this day. So I think looking to him as a original problem solver and an original kind of diagnoser of these problems is really wise and helpful for anyone wanting to understand the world that we live in today. Yeah, so in The Possessed, he seems to be talking about a type of socialism. And we've, you and I have talked about this personally before. Um, is it distinct? from the socialism we see today and like how different is is it 
if it can be called socialism at all. And then I guess from that, we should talk about Dostoevsky's life and how maybe he started out as a utopian thinker and got away from that. Yeah, so the history of socialism and communist thought in Russia is, is very interesting. As everyone knows, uh, Russia, the Russian Empire eventually became the Soviet Union, the premier communist state for most of the 20th century. And um, Russian socialism and its roots are pretty different than a lot of the Western European socialists um, that we've come to know. So yes, like you said, Dostoevsky's life is really important to understanding what he's getting at with his works as well. He did start out as a younger sort of uh, idealistic, young revolutionary thinker. He got involved with some revolutionary groups, not as a revolutionary himself, but just as someone who enjoyed engaging with the ideas that those groups were, um, you know, engaging in themselves. And eventually he's sentenced to death by Tsarist authorities. And then right at the last second before he would have been executed, um, they say, lucky you, we're actually not going to kill you. You just get to go to Siberia instead. And it was at that moment that he really had a sort of uh, change of worldview, right? Um, that encounter with death that in, you, in that case, he almost had to accept that death was an inevitability. And all throughout history, you see these figures who go through a similar experience and totally rework their thinking afterwards. So after this point, Dostoevsky becomes skeptical of a lot of these revolutionary projects. Um, and he gets very interested in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, so for those who don't know, there's the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church who split from one another in the Great Schism um, over theological and ecclesiastical differences. And the Russians, uh, along with a lot of the other Eastern Europeans, are of the Orthodox Church as opposed to the Roman Catholic Church led by the Pope. And Dostoevsky was very, very interested in that Orthodox thought. Um, you know, he takes on kind of almost the monastic look with the long mangy beard and the aesthetic sort of lifestyle. A lot of his characters extol uh, Christian virtues from the Eastern Orthodox perspective. Uh, one of the greatest figures to uh, exemplify this is Father Zasima in uh, Brothers Karamazov, who is kind of the mentor spiritually of Alyosha, who's the protagonist of the book, really. And he constantly talks about this virtue of active love, uh, of not just passively loving things, not just loving things as it comes, but going out of your way to be an active source and participant in, in the act of love. And as cheesy as that may sound to a lot of people, that insight into how important love is, I think is, is critically underappreciated in academia and in science more generally, just because we think of love as, as purely emotional, as kind of irrational, as something that doesn't have any bearing on us beyond our immediate relationships. You know, it's, it's foolish and it's simply false. I think the energies and forces of love and sociality and, and cooperative relationships between people, uh, you don't have those things without love. And so to take it seriously, like Dostoevsky did, to, to say that there's actually a, a philosophy, a virtue behind active loving, um, I think is, is also really important and really influential in my thinking. And yes. I think we, I think libertarians also, and people all over the political spectrum should take the idea of love more seriously because it's not just cheesy and hokey, it's, it's important. If someone comes at me and says, 
love isn't important in this world beyond our immediate romantic relationships. Uh, well, that person's an idiot. And uh, I, I'm not sure I can convince them at that point. Yeah. And that goes to some of the stuff that you've been working on recently. So mm -hmm. um, you gave a speech at the graduate student conference on images of the future and the history of Russian mm -hmm. culture. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about a little bit about that lecture? And I believe, is it Sorokin who, who talked about mm -hmm. love? Yes. Um, so going from the uh, intellectual tradition of Dostoevsky, there's another person along the line several decades later by the name of uh, uh, Piturim Sorokin. And Sorokin was also a Russian from the Komi Republic, and he uh, was a scholar and is often considered the first sociologist or among the first sociologists in the world. And he was witness as a young up-and-coming academic to the 1917 revolution, the Bolshevik revolution. And he was immediately put off by it. Much like Dostoevsky, he saw the disconnect, the dissonance between the ideas they were preaching and the consequences and results they were having when put into action and into practice. And Lenin actually has a, a full speech you can find where he goes over the criticisms and thought of Sorokin. But eventually uh, Sorokin has to flee the country and he made his way to the United States where he founded or helped found the Harvard sociology department. Uh, he was its kind of founding chairperson and he worked there for a long while um, in their sociology department before kind of getting the boot because he got into it with another sociologist, Talcott Parsons, uh, who is arguably much more famous than Sorokin nowadays. Um, but Sorokin, to bring it back home, uh, like Dostoevsky, was very much in, uh, interested in the idea of love and what role this mysterious energy of love plays in our political sphere, social sphere, economic sphere, in our internal kind of uh, conscious sphere. And it was Sorokin's argument that the forces of love energy are just as measurable, just as tangible as, you know, energy production from oil, you know, electricity, just as tangible as water itself. And that we need to put our minds to it, put our academic focus to studying uh, this love energy, what makes people altruistic towards one another, what binds communities, um, what causes people to go out of their way to help one another, even when it's not in their self-interest. Because we can't deny that this altruistic tendency is integral with human nature. It's, it's not going to go away. Of course, there's sociopaths who don't care about other people, and there's people who are so absolutely altruistic that they, they have no sense of, of what they need to do for themselves. But in general, this balance between altruism and individualism is really important. And whereas someone like Ayn Rand says, altruism is just disguised self-interest. You know, if you're act acting altruistic, it's only because you expect reciprocity. And so it's self-interested. You know, I, I think that's totally, uh, totally wrong. In, in my opinion, it's possible to be altruistic in an actively loving way, in a way that's truly out of a spirit of cooperation. And we see this in communities all over the world, all throughout history, but we haven't put our minds to studying what exactly fosters these altruistic tendencies in our nature. How can we organize and structure our communities and societies to maximize that part of our nature? And I think if we can find some good insights and start working down that path, uh, we'll have far more political success 
uh, far more peace in the world, far more prosperity than if we just continue down this path of looking at everything through self-interest and uh, and competition. And it pains a lot of libertarians when I tell them I don't care about competition as much as I care about cooperation, because that goes against kind of the uh, market fundamentalism that a lot of American libertarians tend to have. So uh, yeah. that's a conflict that I, I, I've gotten into it with several uh, libertarian thinkers. And I think I'm, I think I'm turning over some, so. Yeah, I'm definitely not a Randian libertarian. I first started out with a lot of her, her literature. So like We, we the Living, um, mm -hmm. Anthem, you know, she has some really influential stuff that I've, I've read uh, and, you know, her works, I think, are still great. But I think that her focus on the self is, especially from a Christian perspective, is, is a little um, concerning for me. It, it leaves out quite a bit. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And once again, I don't mean to discount everything that Ayn Rand did, right? Uh, she had some great insights. She helped spark libertarianism as a genuine political movement, uh, especially in the United States. And so I'll give her credit where credit's due. She's very important. And we agree on, you know, probably 90% of things at the end of the day. But like you said, her focus on individualism and egoism and rationality and reason as the most important parts of human nature, I, I just think is misguided. And I see from a historical standpoint what she was reacting against. She was reacting against uh, the Soviet politics, Stalinism, the, the atrocities of the mid 20th century. And from that perspective, I could see how you would fully swing towards um, radical individualism, you know, atomization of the individual, promoting, uh, encouraging them to be prideful over, you know, humble and to be self-interested over altruistic. I get why she made those arguments and I just disagree. And she'd be thankful that I disagree. One of the things about Ayn Rand that a lot of people don't realize is she essentially talked about objectivism, her philosophy, as a comprehensive whole. You can't really take bits and pieces of objectivism and then call yourself an objectivist or a Randian. So out of respect for her wishes, I also don't ever refer to myself as an objectivist or as a Randian libertarian, yeah, even if I do agree with a lot of what she says, because she wouldn't want it that way. And she'd like me to constantly criticize her. So yeah, I just, the disclaimer there for those libertarians who are going to click off as soon as we start insulting Rand, you know, you, you, it gets better. So just read some more literature after Rand and, and integrate it all into a better whole. Yeah, definitely. Cause I, th I think part of the, part of the whole equation that she leaves out is like, at least for me, the reason I I'm in favor of freedom and voluntary associations and stuff isn't so much because that's what I prefer, but I also see like, you know, the, I guess, possibility for failure in other human beings and the, the, the need for forgiveness, which I take to be a part of that active love, right? So like mm -hmm. when I see people, you know, one of the most influential works for me is Vice is Not a Crime uh, mm -hmm. by Lysander Spooner. The whole idea is kind of like, at least for me, um, the reason you want to give people freedom is because you want to give them, you don't want to use the state to punish them for vice. It's kind of like a forgiving, you leave room for forgiveness and love in that respect. Um, so I think that that's where 
Rand kind of goes off track, but I still think that especially her work on capitalism, like I ever, I ever work on capitalism and it, it is great. It, it is really awesome. And her stuff on monetary yeah. policy in there is, is great. Um, Certainly. And, and she was uncompromising as well. You know, she, she would go after other thinkers, you know, Milton Friedman, you know, if, if you took a lot of her quotes out of context, you'd think she absolutely hated Milton Friedman. <laughs> and maybe she did, but she's also just, she knew what she believed in and she was 100% firm and standing her ground. And I can really respect that. On the flip side, I'm going to do the same and stand my ground and say where I think she's wrong. And like you said, the focus on the I um, is really just the most, the biggest problem in her thinking to me. And looping back to Sorokin, he laid out three different kinds of human social relationships, right? You have um, coercive, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's a relationship in which one person uses force, coercion, violence, et cetera, to get their end of the deal achieved, right? To, to get their interests uh, achieved at the end of the day. So then instead of coercive, the next one is uh, contractual, right? Which is a lot of what our current system is founded on. And it's certainly better than coercive to have two people voluntarily agree as separate entities to come to a cooperative solution. You know, that's what a lot of our modern society is rooted on, what contract law, property rights, all that is really rooted in is these contractual relationships. And while that's good, it's better than the other one, it's not ideal. The third type is ideal, and that's called the familistic relationship, where the boundaries between the two eyes dissolve and you have the formation of a single we, right? So it's where when you're pursuing this common goal, it's not about two people agreeing, it's about them integrating as a single cooperative entity. And Sorokin's view, this familial relationship, this familistic relationship is the closest kind to the relationship between mankind and God, right? This uh, relationship of active loving, this dissolution of, of two eyes, two egos into something more cooperative. And once again, a lot of libertarians will probably say this sounds like communist hippy-dippy bullcrap, you know, but it's really important because you can't legislate uh, compliance with the NAP into existence or near universal compliance, right? The only way, in my opinion, that we can achieve near universal compliance with the NAP is by promoting these altruistic tendencies among people, by figuring out what makes us cooperative, what forges these familistic relationships between us. Because I don't think that a libertarian community or society can operate obviously on coercive relationships or even really on contractual ones at the end of the day. If you're only following the NAP because you, it's best for your interests as an individual, that's not really in the spirit of it, right? It's about it being best for two people. It's about it being best for everyone as a common, commonly held value and virtue and principle that we all live by. And along those lines, what Sorokin's research pointed at was that low density communities, you know, low population, low density rural communities with a uh, localized economic and uh, consumption system is, is really what's needed to maximize altruistic tendencies. He was, in a lot of ways, very anti-urbanism, and I am very sympathetic to those tendencies. Obviously, cities are, you know, everywhere nowadays. You can't really escape city life for the vast majority of people, but in his view, city life doesn't serve to foster those sorts of healthy, familistic relationships that are needed 
to have something like compliance with the NAP, right? You need high social capital. You need high amounts of love energy in the society. And in huge populations where no one really knows anyone, where it's just a series of day-to-day -day contractual relationships, you don't forge the bonds needed to, to really move forward in a meaningful way. And uh, another thing that I talked about at that conference uh, that's linked to Sorokin is this idea of a law of complexity consciousness. And this law of complexity consciousness is a great framework for viewing political progress, economic progress, human progress in general. And what the law of complexity consciousness states is that as matter complexifies over time, you know, as we go from a bunch of atoms to molecules to bigger molecules to single cell life to multi-cell life to humanity eventually, right? As matter complexifies, consciousness emerges, and then so too does consciousness grow in its uh, you know, depth and its, and its scope. And so we're along this continuous journey of the universe where matter's complexifying, and our consciousness is complexifying as well. And a thinker named uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, my French is awful, so please forgive my uh, pronunciation for any French speakers listening. Um, he, he framed it as kind of just an evolutionary process and as one that will lead to greater amounts of, of love energy and dissolution of eyes into a single we over time. He came up, not originally, but he elaborated upon the idea of a noosphere. So like N-O-O sphere. And we have a geosphere, right? Kind of the rock and metal core of the earth. We have a hydrosphere of the water. We have a biosphere of all the plants and animal life. And then he says, with the birth of humankind and, and, our, and our consciousness and our awareness, kind of a being, a being aware of our own being, there spawns another layer outside of that biosphere called the noosphere which is this layer of human cognition and consciousness and informational exchange. And so that layer is also constantly complexifying. You know, we go from verbal communication to written communication, to texts, to the, the internet, to talking over Zoom. And we're only getting more interconnected in this noosphere, in this in informational sphere of collective consciousness and information processing, right? And, Sorokin and Deschardins tie together really well in that sense, in that it's humankind's destiny to complexify as a, as a collective consciousness. And as we do that, more love energy is going to emerge, right? And it's up to us to figure out how we can structure our communities and our societies to continue to propel ourselves along this path uh, with kind of minimal uh, hiccups along the way. Now, hiccups are inevitable. As I said, I'm, I'm not a utopian. Suffering is gonna be part of the process. Instability, chaos, negativity is always gonna be a factor, but it's a necessary one as well. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try though, right? We can try to be more loving, try to be more cooperative, try to be more aware of, of our place in history and the development of humankind. Because if we only view ourselves as an I, right, as, a, as an ego, as a single rational ego, why would we care about what comes before us? Why would we care what comes after us? Why would we care about anyone else around us, even in the present that we do exist in, right? You need a sense of something greater than yourself, uh, a sense of connectedness to everyone else that has been and will be 
in order to, in my opinion, be a productive and meaningful actor in this world. Um, and that kind of gets at the, the root of what Sorokin, Dostoevsky, Deschardins all have in common, is just that you have to have a picture and a conception of yourself beyond just yourself. You have to have a view of yourself that accounts for your loving relationship to all the others around you in your life and the way in which you can best interact with them to have a, the best life for yourself, make the best life for them, and um, you know, ultimately just view yourself as part of humanity and not just this temporarily, temporary blip of a human. Yeah, so is, is it Sorokin's view then, um, I believe when I was reading it, it, it's kind of secular in the way that suffering occurs um, and it's that suffering that pushes progress forward? Yeah, so he has a cyclical view of history and progress, but it, it doesn't specifically relate to suffering. Okay. Uh, so his cyclical view of history is that we go through these great civilizational and cultural eras, these different integrations of thought. And the one that we're in right now, for example, he deemed the sensate era, where empiricism, materialism, scientism dominate our way of thinking. Um, we're very focused on enlight you know the the values that came out of the enlightenment right um that we are enlightened rational beings now he views this as a era where we'll have great technological advancement great scientific advancement um great material growth in the world but at the same time it doesn't foster the spiritual growth the the, the complexification of our consciousness right so whereas the sensate era really focuses on the complexification of the material world of matter the era to come, the uh, uh, ideational era is what he calls it, is going to be the era where perhaps we won't have the same scientific and technological advancement. Um, the Middle Ages being, being an example of this ideational era. But instead of being focused on the material, we're focused on the spiritual, the metaphysical, and the, the integration of a godly universal whole into our lives, right? So in the sensate era, we're atomized rational beings in ideational eras were more uh, connected spiritual beings. And in the in-between, in this transitory zone, he calls the idealistic eras, uh, an example being the Renaissance between the Middle Ages and the Enlightenment, where there's a, a pretty even balance between focus on empiricism and rationality and scientism, as well as the metaphysical, spiritual, uh, religious aspect of humanity as well. And I want to make a, a point here about the sensate era and scientism, right? So when I say scientistic, it's very different than being scientific. Being scientistic is to have, you know, unrestricted faith in our senses and our ability to make uh, scientific hypotheses and conclusions. Um, whereas to be scientific is to recognize that, that it's a tool in our toolbox. So nowadays, you know, even, um, among a lot of people that I really respect as thinkers, they're scientistic. They, they don't believe that there are valid forms of knowledge outside of that which we can empirically, scien scientistically gain. Whereas I'm very much interested in things like the perennial wisdoms around us, um, you know, intuition, things that they may not be verifiable by the senses, uh, but are nonetheless very real and very relevant forms of truth and knowledge. And as we enter these twilight years of the sensate era and we begin to 
kind of become interested again in, in the spiritual side of humanity. Um, I think the scientism is going to go out um, fighting, certainly, but it's going to go out nonetheless. And sorry, go on. I guess, would you say that these thinkers are, are romantic insofar as they're not reliant on rationality or, or is that not a good way to describe them? You know, that, could, that actually might be a very good way to describe them. Um, so romanticism or rather neo-romanticism is something that we're seeing more and more of in just the last couple of years. And in my mind, it's part of this meta-modern movement. So whereas we had modernity, which was kind of, you know, the industrial age and the culmination of enlightenment values, then we had post-modernity where we deconstruct all that we had constructed, right? Meta-modernity and meta-modernism is a, the reconstructive age, you know, the post-postmodernism. And one of the hallmark traits of this metamodernism is neo-romanticism. It's abandoning this strict adherence to rationality and empiricism and recognizing that sometimes our intuition, our feelings can have valid insights as well. And Ben Shapiro often says, facts don't care about your feelings and that's correct, but feelings also don't care about your facts, right? There's, there's a back and forth feedback relationship between the two. You know, we, we have feelings based on factual things in the world. And our feelings are also factual. No one can, uh, you know, negate our feelings. And so that's another strain among, especially conservative leaning libertarians is this, this once again, I, I think it goes back to Rand in a lot of ways, this emphasis on empiricism and rationality um, is just in, in stark, stark contrast to a focus on wisdom and intuition and other forms of, of knowledge derivation. Um, I just think feelings, you know, love is a feeling, but it's a feeling that has tangible impacts in the real world, right? People take action based off the feeling of love. Um, people do wonderful things in its name. People do terrible things in its name. And so to say that feelings have no bearing on reality, that feelings aren't any more real than the matter around us is, is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And I think we need to embrace this romantic, irrational side of, of humanity and love it, not to, not to hate that part of ourselves, right? That's the underground man kind of hated that about him. And I think we need to to love that bit about us, to love that we can be irrational and to love that we can be so loving that we do ridiculous things. So, and is, yeah. Is the idea then maybe not to rely on rationality or these romantic, um, I guess, faculties, but to maybe use them as tools in a toolbox for different occasions and stuff like that? Precisely, precisely. You know, I'm not gonna say that we should just ignore you know, science, like I said, there's a difference between being scientific and scientistic, and we need to use our rationality when applicable, and we need to toss it to the side when applicable as well. You know, there are plenty of situations where the most rational self-interested option isn't necessarily the best one. And so, like you said, yeah, there are tools in the toolbox. We should be unafraid and unapologetic about being romantic and sappy and, and weird beings. And, but that doesn't mean we should also throw aside the fact that we can be very reasonable, very rational, and that we're very, very smart and intelligent beings, right? I would hate to be 
intelligent but emotionless in the same way I'd hate to be, um, you know, incredibly emotional but dumb. Yeah. Well, this is interesting because I'm curious how this plays into um, anti-fragility and some other stuff that you've, you've talked about then. And I, I guess after that, we can start to wrap up. Yeah, for sure. Um, so anti-fragility has always been a concept uh, ever since I heard it that I just latched onto immediately. And a lot of it had to do with the connection I saw to thinkers like Dostoevsky and Sorokin, people who recognized that suffering is inevitable. And not only is it inevitable, but it's actually desirable in some ways. And, you know, we can't live in a universe where everything just goes perfectly because that law of complexity consciousness, right? Complexity is driven by chaos and chaos is just, it's not predictable. It's not necessarily even rational. It just is, right? And it's going to cause wild times. It's going to cause um, things we don't like about the world, but that's how we drive ourselves forward, right? Anti-fragility is really the propulsion mechanism of evolution, you know, both in the bio, the, the mental cognitive consciousness sense as well. We need to have emotions that we don't like. We need to be angry and sad and frustrated and confused and work through those in order to better ourselves. Burn our hand and stub our toe in order to become more athletic, physically adept beings, right? So anti-fragility at the end of the day, much like Dostoevsky and Sorokin, is anti-utopian and in many ways also anti-rational egoism, right? If you really were a perfectly self-interested rational being, why would you put yourselves in situations uh, where anti-fragility could take action, where you'd have to um, put up with negative emotions or painful sensations to, to better yourself, right? So in many ways, we have to, our rationality drives us into these uncomfortable situations, uh, but it's not for the worse, it's really for the better. And uh, once again, I don't mean to negate anyone who's had an awful life and has had a lot of pain and suffering in their life. It sucks, that's for sure. But it's an inevitable part of the human condition. And at the end of the day, we thrive in environments of chaos and uncertainty. And I think if we truly, and this, this goes back to notes from underground, he noted, if you gave man nothing to do but eat cake and busy himself with the procreation of the species. So in other words, if you could just have sex and eat junk food all day, right? Man would inevitably destroy that whole system just out of spite because he's bored, right? We, we'd actually be bored in utopia because we need to have these negative sensations and feelings to feel human. Mm. I see. Well, yeah, if there's anything else that you want to say, just to wrap up, um, tell people where they can find your information, and then we can let you go. This has been really great. Yeah, the, the last thing I, I really wanted to touch on really quickly is just the importance of localism, right? Uh, local politics is the only politics that in my mind is really going to matter going into the future. The most altruistic communities, the most loving communities are those that are tightly knit and relatively small, you know, somewhere probably beneath Dunbar's number in all reality. And local politics is the best way to represent your interests, to help other people as well and their interests, to form a we out of multiple eyes, right? It's hard to do with lots of people in a big city. It's hard to do if you have a whole giant country of people doing it. And freedom of association is by far the most important freedom. 
freedom of association in my mind even comes before freedom of speech you know the right to bear arms any of that because they don't matter unless you can freely associate with the people who you think you can form the best community with the most loving altruistic productive community and so look into localism reconsider uh, the scale that your political systems and economic systems are, are working at, right? There sh I shouldn't have a juice box like the one I have where it says it has apples from Chile, Brazil, Zimbabwe, you know, Scotland and Maine, right? You know, the apples should be from nearby, right? The globalized economy is great and it's done wonderful things, but I think it's time to start reconsidering this embedded growth obligation. Shout out to Eric Weinstein and, and this idea of an embedded growth obligation. Sorokin's view of liberty, was a, an equation of sum of means over sum of wishes. So what you can do over what you want to do or, or have. And he said, the sensate era that we're in was all about increasing the wishes continually and as such having to increase the means of satisfying them, right? And that necessitates growth, right? That sort of conception of liberty has an embedded growth obligation within it. So he instead was somewhat of an advocate of what he called an aesthetic uh, view of liberty, which is that you have internal self-mastery and control over um, those wishes so that you don't have to continually multiply your means to achieve them, right? And that goes back to localism, to self-sustainability, to, to localized economies, production and consumption. And not only will you have uh, fairer economic systems, uh, better products, better things being put into your system. Uh, it'll also be more loving, altruistic, and cooperative. And so if you want to hear a lot more about these different ideas, I know there's a lot of rambling on this podcast. It's, uh, it's hard to be concise with a lot of this stuff. Definitely read more from me on my Medium, uh, medium.com slash uh, post from underground. Uh, follow me first and foremost on Twitter, at the underscore posts, very easy uh, to find. And uh, I talk about this stuff all the time. I'm continually evolving my thoughts. And if anyone has criticisms, they hate everything I said and wanna, wanna discuss it more, you know, reach out to me. I, I love talking. Uh, part of active love is active dialogue, so. Awesome, well, that's great. And I'll link to that stuff in the description of the video, so. But it's great to I have you Liam. Um, it's awesome Yeah, great to talk to you again. Yeah, of course, and we'll, I'll stay in touch. For sure. Well, uh, take care, Liam. Have a great rest of your day. And uh, until next time. It's the weekend. We can let go. It's the full send. It's the get-go. It's the get-go. Get-go.